Scott Armstrong, welcome to the Rethink Podcast. Uh, well, thank you for having me. It's nice to be here. How are you today? Most of you know us, uh, most of us know you as a journalist, as a speaker, but today you are here as the founder of Mental. And uh, I, before we begin, I, I just want to know what is the connection, what, what is, has changed in these two years, probably is related to the pandemic, but we will know, we will know for sure uh, just in a minute. Yeah, um, well, I launched Mental um, basically because I, I I wanted to tackle the stigma of mental health head on. Um, and I got a number of whys. Um, in my last job, um, I'd begun to lean into the human side of business, um, whether that be ESG, whether that be equality, diversity, inclusion, and then mental health and resilience. Uh, <clears throat> but I got some very personal whys as to why I launched the project. Um, I watched my father die from a mental health breakdown three and a half years ago. Um, and he was a very strong and a very resilient man. He was a typical British 1970s hard man. Um, his motto in life was uh, Invictus Manio, which means I remain undefeated. Um, and he did remain undefeated until 68. And then mental health came calling and it literally took him from us um, in about three months time. He took three months. So that kind of opened my eyes up to what was going on inside myself, my own uh, questions around mental health, my own relationship with mental health. Um, and it also showed me that it doesn't really matter how success, you know, how successful you are, or even indeed how happy you think you are at any given point. You know, if if you're faced with mental health issues, none of that's a shield. None of that makes you immune from from the impact of that. So that kind of woke me up. Uh, and then I look around the world and I look what's happening and I've got young children. I've got a you know, a daughter who's six years old. I've got a boy who's 15. I've got, a, I got, I got a son who's 21 and just trying to find his first job. Um, second biggest killer of young man aged between 19 and 24 suicide. So lots of personal reasons as to why. And I don't know. It's like, I just think, you know, when my father passed, it really woke up something in me. And when you see it, you can't stop seeing it. And once you're kind of aware of it, it, it's there. You can't unsee it. Um, and so it's been building for a while. I'd wanted to embrace the the kind of the human side. Um, I'm hitting 50 this year. So it was just time to do something to kind of give back rather than in journalism. We tend to report on the misery and get clicks from the misery, shall we say. And I'd wanted very much in the last job to help, particularly because I took over uh, my previous title during the middle of the pandemic when lots of businesses were struggling and we were a business title. So I really wanted to try and sort of give back and lift up and, you know, help startups flourish, um, help businesses, you know, have that argument about ESG or equality and diversity. So, yeah, I, I suppose it's just that, you know, woke up one day and wanted to add some more value to the world. So that's perhaps where it comes from. A very long answer to a very quick question. It's very personal. It is not easy to be uh, short when when yeah. you have so so many uh, arguments to to touch and and points to uh, to develop, and uh, people have have to know that we are recording this episode in October, and on October 10, uh, it was the World Mental Health Day, and it was an opportunity to raise awareness and uh, mobilize efforts leading to a better treatment, and this is what you are doing through your project. But 
um, in order to act, we need a better understanding, right, of the cause of the mental illness. And research has shown that economic inequality could be a significant contributor to mental illness. And we have to discuss more about this issue because the pandemic had uh, accentuated these greater yeah. disparities in wealth and income. And these are very much associated with increased status of anxiety and stress. And we also have to discuss about the, the poverty that uh, hurts children development and can contribute to social and emotional and co cognitive impairment. So my question is, is, I know it's very vast, it's very complex and would be that, um, we have to look at how can a society be designed for mental well-being? Well, that is a huge, huge question. Um, I think we have to keep recording for a week to try and answer that one. I mean, look, you're absolutely right. I mean, the first, my position is that we need to start asking the questions and we need to start having the conversations and having open conversations um it's interesting because we're obviously based or i'm certainly based in the uee which is um it's kind of like a different conversation here because you look outside of the region you look outside of the uee often the private sector innovates and the private sector leads the way and the public sector follows um here the uee is kind of forging ahead in all sorts of wellness um sort of metrics and wellness initiatives it's recently launched a national helpline for mental health uh based out of abu dhabi at the beginning of the year it became one of the first nations on the planet to kind of abandon the five-day week for a 4.5 day working week and they've already been uh to davos reporting some of the initial findings which is decreased absenteeism decreased presenteeism which is more expensive than absenteeism to businesses this is something that ceos and c-suites don't sometimes sometimes get um increase in productivity and an increase in um kind of staff staying shall we say that attrition you know staff attrition a decrease in staff attrition so um here the public sector is leading and actually the narrative keeps getting louder to the private sector, which is, this is the train that's coming down the tracks. You know, the UEE is not rowing back on well-being for its people. It wants to attract the brightest and the best from around the world to the UEE. So from an economic point of view, from a very sort of almost like selfish economic point of view, there is no marketing win for the UE to go backwards in terms of uh, in terms of wellness. So they've sent a really clear message to the private sector that is get on board with this. What's crazy to me as a former business journalism, but sorry, former business journalist is companies that do the right thing simply make more money. Um, and they need to be bold enough to abandon a system of management and leadership that's been around for a hundred years. You know, Henry Ford brought this kind of modern day work, nine, nine to five, five days a week, you know, a, a century ago. And when he did so, he said, well, this is not necessarily what it needs to be forever. Um, we're just going to do this because this is a step forward. But then we took no more steps forward for 100 years. Now we are having uh, a step forward. So I think if you talk about um, societies and well-being, obviously societies and well, you know, societies and well-being, there's so many different aspects to that. Here we've got the public sector who is um, trying to lead the way. 
We've got to get this into our schools. What's really important for the future, and I'm very, very passionate about this, is that not only do we get this into the schools, but into the home lives so that our children grow up with better tools than we had, because frankly, we needed better tools growing up than we had. Um, our children are growing up in an even more polarized, even more complicated world. Um, where often the bedroom is the most dangerous place for them as opposed to the safest place in my generation. Um, you know, there's a huge decrease in outdoor activity versus them being in their bedrooms on their phones. So we've got to get it right at the government level. I'm fortunate to live in a country that's uh, innovating in that space. We've got to get it right in the private sector. And there's a lot of work to do there. We've got to get it right in the schools and we've got to get it right in communities. I think the first point is talking about it and tackling that stigma and really recognizing that, you know, this is a private pandemic. I mean, I could quote you statistics all day about one in three people around the world, you know, impacted this. Well, I think actually it's one in four uh, are globally, as far as the World Health Organization is concerned. UEE research put it at one in three. Um, so, but that's the people who present to the medical system generally it's more like one in one or one in 1.2 you know if you get from zero to 99 and you're not impacted by mental health you, you know you won the lottery so yes we do the the short answer to your question is yes but anyone knows me including my wife goes i wish you'd give a short answer to a question but i can't i can only ever give the long rambling winding answer but yeah there are so many different parts of society that make up um the mental health picture and we need to tackle them all and we've got to start somewhere when it comes to the leadership and the well-being of the team if you want to be a progressive business leader now is the time to invest in the emotional and mental health of, of the team because the team is after all the most valuable resources that a company has right so oh. what what is the link what is the connection you are uh, making and promoting this uh, relation relationship well-being and leadership well i mean again i'll give you another long rambling answer but the signa do an annual well-being study every year um it's called their 360 well-being survey last year they asked uh respondents did you want to do you want to quit your job are you going to are you planning to quit your job 50 percent said yes now a lot of bosses back then kind of like rolled their eyes and yeah well they would say that wouldn't they they went back and asked them again this year. Four out of five did. So if you think of that in terms of a company setup, 40% quit. Um, and I've got a really good friend, Bobby Hartshaw, and she made a really insightful point the other day to me, which was that 40% who are quitting and moving to other jobs, they're not your worst performers. They're your best performers because they're your most talented people that have the access to move. Um, and quite frankly, employers don't have a choice on this. Um, there's been so many factors that have meant that the foundation of what we call the future of work is completely and utterly changed under the feet of CEOs. And if they want to be, it's not about if they want to be a good boss, if they want to be a boss at all, if they want their company to survive more than five to 10 years, realistically, they absolutely have to take action now because all of the metrics and all of the research as well. This isn't me saying this. This is uh, BCG or McKinsey or PwC or EY or Deloitte. There isn't a single research house out there that doesn't say that emotional intelligence and empathy are the key metrics moving forward for leaderships. Um, if you look at 
I think it's a Deloitte piece of research that said actually that the Gen Z uh, generation will be are the first generation to prioritize well-being and meaning and purpose uh, beyond salary. So simply paying cash is no longer enough. You have to create an environment. Uh, and again, another piece of research that was really interesting because it put things in stark relief, whereas the PwC do a CEO survey here in the region. Uh, and the CEOs, it's like, so what's important to the CEOs? And the CEOs prioritize and recognize and fear their ability to innovate. Innovation, number one, key thing to all of them. Because if they can't innovate, if they can't identify new markets that well, either they can expand into or new technological developments that can either take advantage of or potentially damage them, <clears throat> they've got no future. They are not sustainable as a company. On the flip side of that, the thing they least prioritize, well-being, ESG, uh, diversity and inclusion. All the things we know matter to the millennials and the Gen Zs and the Gen Alphas coming after them. So if you can't create a compelling offer to the next generation of talent, what is the future of your company? And that's it. That's it. And I feel for the C-suites right now. I Often it can become almost like boss bashing. And there are some bosses out there that definitely do deserve their flack because they are not good and they are dinosaurs and they need to go. And then there are a, a, a huge section of C-suites that just don't know where to get started with this. I mean, if you think right now, CEOs, the definition of a CEO was always chief executive officer. Uh, now it's chief empathy officer or chief emotional officer or chief whatever you like. But it used to just be PL, master the process, deliver the profit. That was all that was required. Now you're you're expected to inspire people, you're expected to uphold the reputation in an increasingly difficult environment where all of your stakeholders are activists, all of them expect more of you. You are held to a higher uh, you know, higher bar than ever before. And if you muck it up, you know, the world will find out much quicker than ever. Uh, and it only takes one activist within your organization to speak out. And then you can be, you know, in, in global headlines. We saw that there was a really interesting company called Brewdog back in the UK, which started off as a, an SME, used to be the, the poster child for startups and grew to this massive, massive company. Huge success story, huge success story. But in that speed of growth, they lost their culture. And then they had open letters being written to the BBC and to the, me the national media talking by former employees talking about the toxic culture inside that company. So then they were in the headlines for all the wrong reasons. Um, and the CEO, you know, to be fair to him, actually listened, looked up and went, right, well, we need to change this, you know? Um, and actually this is my fault. I've been so focused on growth that I've forgotten about my people. Um, and he's set about trying to systematically completely change everything and retool his business. So the people come first. And we can get in. There's loads of reasons why the people should come first. You know, again, from a purely economic perspective, you if you're a boss and you buy a machine for one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, you wouldn't run that machine at one hundred and fifty percent, twenty five hours a day, eight days a week until it broke. You just wouldn't do it. It's madness. And yet we feel that we can do the same with our human machines. And in a knowledge economy, they're increasingly our engine of output. 
So, yeah, so many fundamentals. And the Gen Zs and the millennials have rejected the toxic treadmill that work. They don't want it, you know, and, and quite rightly so. So we've got a generational change. We've got a technological change because lots of us know that we can now work at home and do, you know, meetings on Zoom or on Teams or whatever platform you want. We know we don't have to sit and be miserable in an office from nine to five. Um, and our generation, you know, the Gen Zs are now going, I don't, you know, salary, it's not all that I'm about. So we've really got to, as the private sector, as employees moving forward, it's about it's about survival. But I mean, there's so many benefits if they act now and start retooling their business because they can future-proof themselves for the next 100 or 200 years because it doesn't matter what technological change happens. It doesn't matter where or how your business operates. If you've got an amazing culture, talent will always come and work for you. So you've always got a future. If you don't, clock's ticking. Let's move our discussion in a more practical uh, terms and let's see how leaders can prioritize uh, employees' well-being and mental health. Because, of course, one way would be for them to, uh, to first turn inward reflect and understand their own emotions and fears yeah. and stress and then turn outward to help employees and all colleagues uh, with uh, with their reaction yeah um, what are those solutions well i think um you have literally just hit the nail on the head there um and again i'm going to give you another long answer <laughs> sorry no um you're absolutely right that ceos do need to reflect yeah and turn inwards because um there's a lot of insecurity and fear in the in the c-suite because they don't quite know how to go about their the concept of vulnerable leadership or servant leadership you know um is is quite alien to many uh organizations and particularly ceos particularly men as well i have to say unfortunately there are there are too many people that look like me and not enough people that look like you in boardrooms Uh, you know that needs to be uh that needs to be addressed you know there needs to be a lot more equality in boardrooms which and diversity which will be helpful to this conversation moving forward um but yeah we've got a lot of leaders who are very insecure i know all the leaders that were ever awful to me they were terrified absolutely terrified um and they they are living a lie they're miserable themselves the only way they can hide is they can hide in hierarchical management structures where if someone comes to them either with a problem or comes to them with a different opinion to theirs it has to be shut up and do as you're told because they're terrified of it seeing by you know, by seeming weak whereas the stronger answer is to go oh that's interesting or oh I actually don't know. Let's find the answer together. So the first step is for them to recognize it themselves. The first step is for them to prioritize and embrace their mental health so that they see the benefits first. And as this whole phrase around the whole concept around fitting your own oxygen mask first, which is in all parts of life, but it's also the same in the C-suite. We need our leaders to understand the benefits of this for themselves and then they can cascade that down their organizations. So turn, as you rightly said there, turn inward first, fix what's happening there. And like when you say fix, that's not a destination that it will arrive at. That's a, a path they continuously need to work. 
and walk every day uh, because we none of us are ever there. You know, we don't get there. There's no there, there's no final destination where we're like, oh, we're happy and content. No, it's a you know, it is a daily it is a daily uh, daily challenge. Um, and, you know, some days are going to be great and some days uh, are not. An old friend of mine, Fran, used to say some days you're the lamppost and some days you're the dog. Um, won't elaborate any more on that phrase. Uh, so, yeah, inward first and then begin to cascade the benefits of that down through their organizations. Because if they don't believe it and if they don't champion it, then the middle management are not going to do it. They'll go, oh, yeah, it's a tick boxing exercise, tick, tick box ticking exercise. Sorry. And that's not going to change the culture. Um, and everyone's still going to be afraid. So unless it's actually championed from the very, very top and cascading through the organization, it's not going to help. Um, so, yeah, that's that's the first place for leaders to be brave um, and to sit and kind of talk amongst themselves. You know, um, there's a really interesting guy called Sir Ian Cheshire that has he's run Barclays Bank. He ran Kingfisher. Um, he's run some of the biggest companies in the world. You know, he's been in the hot seat. He's been in the top seat. Um, and he talks about leaders now creating their own board of advisors around them, like a per, you know, like a board, a company may have a board of directors. Well, you as a CEO need your own personal board of mentors and support around you. Not necessarily just to tell you, yes, you're brilliant, but actually to have honest conversations with you so that you can stay on track and you can stay um, on balance as much as possible. And then when you get into it, a lot of practical help, there is, you know, there's a lot of coaching out there. There's a lot of free resources online. Um, so if it, it, it is that whole, yeah, I think with the alcoholics say, the first step is admitting that you've got a problem. And I think that's what leaders need to do. And even more than that, even if they don't necessarily have a problem, there is this whole thing that we've we've recognized now that we need to look after our health to a degree. You know, we know we need to go to the gym. We know we need, we need, we need to drink less. We know we need to eat healthier. Um, so we try to avoid or increasingly we understand that we shouldn't wait until crisis point with our physical health. It's exactly the same with our mental health. So for particularly leaders who are in difficult positions, it is tough at the top, particularly in an industrial environment. We've got Web 3.0 coming on. We've got the fourth industrial revolution, shall we say. Um, we've got this entire change of leadership styles going underneath it. Uh, the insecurity and instability in the C-suite is like, car manufacturing workers when the robots came in you know the fundamentals have completely and utterly changed which means that it is a tough on leaders and also we've then just gone through a pandemic in which lots of people were looking to the leaders for answers and and, and who's prepared for that who's prepared for a pandemic nobody is you know um and it's only then that organizations with resilient cultures will rise to the top. And it's only then leaders who have developed resilient cultures within themselves. And that's not how hard I am, but actually how much I can, you know, the support structure I've put around me so I can actually deal with all of this because people are looking to me for answers. I've never been more responsible for people's futures. And then I've never been more responsible to the future of the company because now we're trying to make back the money that we lost in 2020. Um, and 2021 and the first response to most companies is to work people three times as harder in 2022 to uh, try and get all that profit back unfortunately 
it's it yeah you might make money this year but again the Cigna research found out that in the UEE 98% of people had at least one symptom of burnout 98% and that number from last year the 50% they were quitting their jobs has gone up 55% this year um and the UEE is also leading the way in terms of uh employees willing to quit their job to or that they're, they're reprioritizing so they'll re, they're, they will retire earlier even if it means they have less money to live on they will quit their job and go to a salary that's actually less than what they're on if there's a better work life balance so you know all the signs are there that your leader needs to look inwards first and it starts there and it starts by having a conversation we need lots more leaders to actually turn around and go yeah i'm struggling i am i'm struggling um and let's all find the all find the answers together because vulnerable leadership servant leadership actually pays off a lot better than lead by fear we need to take it almost like a leaf out of sports you know you in football, for example, you know, it's the players on the field of play that score the goals. And the manager's job is to get them in shape and give them the tactics and the tools to win. He can't kick the ball. He can't micromanage success. He has to trust his team to perform on the day. And there's very little he can do if they're not. So he has to build that culture of confidence, that culture of belief. He needs to train, you know, he needs to develop their skills. So he needs to, but he needs to be the servant. Um, and then if they do that, they win leagues, they win titles. If they don't, I've never seen a, a team that's led by fear win. Is it wrong to say that the health practices and policies were meant to be handled by the human resources department and before the pandemic? And what you are proposing now is to reset this uh, this uh, approach and mm -hmm. for the CEOs to be more hands-on to the health uh, practices, to the health policies. And do you have some examples of uh, companies that uh, made this reset? Well, I mean, look, we're in the, I've got I've got plenty of examples of companies that didn't um, and there, there's more and more. Uh, but you can see, you know, companies, even the likes of Google, um and who was it I'm trying to remember you know google have tried to put in some good practices um but they haven't by any means got that all right um whereas we've got people like jp morgan the you know the the, the huge bank the financial bank who went everybody back in the office now no flexibility you've got to be in the office and literally 50 percent of people didn't turn up you know and so what are you then going to do as an employer you're going to lose 50 percent of your talent that's a really interesting thing that you're going to do overnight. Um, you know, we've seen Nike move to create the company company days where the entire company's off, no work days, just mental health reset days. So it's it's beginning to get there. We've seen some companies, and I can't remember which one it was, literally say to their employees, you can work anywhere. Literally, you can work anywhere. We don't care. Don't matter where you are, you can work anywhere. So you can be in the office. Or you can't be, in, or you can be on a beach in Bali. As long as the work gets done, then that's fine. And and look, it's interesting as well because every company is different, and every not everybody can work from home. Not everybody can work remotely. You know, if you're frontline, or if you're in retail, or if you're in hospitality, you can't. You know, you can't phone in. Um, you can't email in your work. But then that's when it comes back down to culture. What is the culture that you are creating within your environment? Because that, you know, transcends models, shall we say. 
I mean, I'm a big believer in hybrid if possible, because I certainly think our young team members often need the social element of workplaces. Um, they often need mentoring. And there's mentoring by osmosis as well, which is sat by next, sat next to somebody listening to and watching them do the job without even having to ask them what they're doing. They can pick up stuff. At the same time, we've got open plan offices. All the science we see about open plan offices, terrible for productivity, terrible for mental health. Don't know why we're still doing them. We know, well, actually, we do know why you're still doing them. They're cheaper for organizations to create. Why do I need to stick offices and walls and all that sort of thing? Uh, companies that are doing it right, there is an interesting one. Um, Visa here in uh, Dubai created their new headquarters. Um, and I think now, I might be getting the figures wrong, but I think they got like 50,000 employees around the region um, and they created, they're all, almost operated on a model of a third. So their headquarters is only a space for their foot because they're built in flexible working into their entire business model, which then they've almost, they've created their culture and expressed it through a physical construction where they've given themselves no choice. They can't say to their entire team, no more flexibility. I mean, they're smart enough to know that that's actually not the future anyway. But they have physically designed themselves an environment which embraces the future of work rather than keeps the option open to have everybody back into the, you know, to the production line, so to speak. Again, another long and rambling answer to your question. Thank you so much for this insight. And because we have reached the end of our interview, we, we have to point some things that... As much as we would like to believe it, our psychological and emotional health is not a given. Uh, you started with this and many of us will experience mental health issues at some point in our lifetime, actually. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you and your project uh, are giving us a different perspective on things, uh, that our fragility is not a weakness, but a way to deepen our connection with each other. So thank you so much for, for this, Scott. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for listening to me ramble on and give you long winding answers to very good questions.